Hello, vampires and slayers. This is Mixtress Ray, and you're listening to What's This Bitch Talking About? To which the answer to that question is every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer exactly 20 years after its original air date. And also Angel. So I don't know if I'm going to do this forever and ever. Let me know what you guys think. But I'm going to start today with the Angel episode because I found that... Whenever I'm like watching the episodes and taking notes on the day, I like to watch Angel first because I don't take as many notes for Angel. I don't take as take it as seriously. So I like the Buffy episode to be fresh in my mind, even though I think that the Buffy episodes aired first on the actual day. But um, yeah, I've just found that I like doing that. And I also, whenever I'm recording the podcast, by the time I'm done talking about Buffy... I just, like, don't even want to talk anymore, and then I have to talk about Angel, or I don't have to, but, um, so I think I'm going to see how it goes by talking about Angel first, because that's the discussion that's the shortest, and then when I'm done talking about the heavier subject, the Buffy subject, then that's the end of the podcast, you know? I think that makes more sense, maybe. Let's do it. Let's try it out. So, if there was ever a time, there are a few, there are a handful of times wherein watching the Angel episode on the same night as watching the Buffy episode is actually enhances the experience, this is it. So, the Angel episode that we're talking about tonight is called Darla. The Buffy episode is called Fool for Love. So, these two episodes actually go hand in hand really, really well. They're both super good episodes. They both deal with the origin story of a specific vampire. In the case of the Angel episode, it's Darla. In the case of the Buffy episode, it's Spike. So we're seeing a bunch of flashbacks and they cross over. Since, you know, this vampire troupe, Angel, Darla, Drusilla, and Spike, um... Well, that should really be in order of appearance to vampirism, right? I should have listed it like that. Darla, Angel, Drusilla, Spike. So, um, yeah, I actually, I think that if, if you're a person that likes to watch these episodes in conjunction with listening to me talk about them, and sometimes you skip Angel, I would recommend watching Angel this time watching the two of these episodes back-to-back, because it was really enjoyable. I just did it. Um, So, you guys, just because, you know, I'm a process queen, I will tell you, it's kind of weird. I'm recording during daylight right now, so there's not going to be any drinking on this episode, because for some reason, I'm very much not a day drinker. Like it seems wrong to me. Like every once in a while, like you go to lunch with friends or something and you have a drink and I just don't like being drunk during the day. I just don't like it. So yeah, not going to be drinking tonight, but because it's not even nighttime, it's three 30 in the afternoon. So this angel episode is actually like, I was surprised by it. Like I'm not usually a person that I don't really give a shit about Darla in general, but this episode made her a compelling character, and I forgot that that happened in this episode. So basically, let's see, what does the Nikki Stafford Angel Guide say as a description for this 
um, episode, Darla. Through flashbacks, we see how Darla became a vampire, what life, what life was like when she was with Angelus, and how her past is impacting her present. So the episode begins with Angel is sulking in his room, um, and he's drawing Darla. And you see, like, at the end of the scene that there are, like, little crumpled up pages all over his room. He's just been drawing Darla obsessively, which is really creepy, Angel. That's just really creepy. And Wesley, understandably, is concerned, and he's inserting himself. Throughout this episode, Wesley is inserting himself in and being really pushy with Angel and confronting him with the reality that, you know, his obsession with Darla is not, is not cute. You know, it's not, he doesn't get to just shrug it off and say he's fine. And he, several points during the episode, he's like, well, obviously Wolferman Hart brought her back to distract you. And this is the first time I feel like all season people have been saying this to Angel ever since Darla came back, but this is the first time he's actually hearing it. He actually hears it from Wesley in this episode. He's like, oh, and if that's their aim, then it's completely working because he's spending all of his time and energy wanting to find Darla, wanting to help Darla, being distracted by her. I, my, like, instinctual reaction to this is just like, God, this... I, I'm, I'm going to walk it back, I think. But, like, my instinctual reaction to this is always, why are we paying so much attention to Darla? Like, Angel's lovesickness to Buffy, I feel like the the wind gets taken out of it, out of its sails. I don't know what kind of metaphor I'm trying to use here. But the significance of his lovesickness towards Buff, Buffy seems to be, like, I don't, it feels less significant when you see how crazy he gets for Darla in the beginning of the season. And it's always bothered me. But I think I get it now. Um, because I just, I don't think I was actually like imagining the gravity of the situation. You get turned into a vampire and your life is all about being a vampire with this person. He was in a relationship with Darla for like 150 years or some shit and that's pretty significant so i i don't like that the way that they're showing that obsession is through angel like obsessively drawing her although that is consistent with his character he likes to draw people he drew buffy while she was sleeping he drew buffy's mom while she was sleeping um He's he does that and that obsessive quality leaching into his life, even with a soul, I guess, makes sense. It's just creepy. It's just creepy. Anyway, so let's see. Where are my notes? Wesley wants to connect. Angel's not OK. Um, so that first scene is just like, you know, establishing that Angel's still obsessed. He doesn't know where Darla is and he's obsessed. And then cut to the next scene Darla's alone and whatever I think she's staying with Lindsay or something I don't know or he just keeps coming to visit her I don't know which I don't know if this is his house or just where Wolfram and Hart put Darla up and Lindsay's visiting I think that's the case but I don't know 
So she has just, she's starting, the gravity of her soul is starting to set in. Like when she was first brought back from the dead, human with a soul, um, I think she was able to kind of retain the parts of her vampire personality that existed when she died, but it's coming back to her now. So that's kind of consistent with what happened to Angel. And you see several flashbacks in this episode of like, I kind of like how nuanced Angel's beginnings of having a soul, how nuanced the show makes it, or the whole Buffy verse in general makes it. You know, it's not like he became ensouled and then immediately started being a good little vampire. He was tortured by his soul. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know where he fit in because he was a vampire, but he also had a soul. So he couldn't be entirely, he could never be entirely good, but he's not bad anymore either. He can't handle being bad. And this episode in particular kind of gives you some backstory to that. Like you see him like... I guess he spent like two years. So you've seen, you know, if you were to cut together all the flashbacks of Angel's life, um, and I think I can kind of do that in my brain right now. <laughs> that probably exists on YouTube too, I bet. That'd be cool to watch. Anyway, I'm not going to stop and do that right now. I'm not going to stop and do that right now. Um, so if you cut together all the moments, like he first gets cursed with his soul and um, when Darla finds out, she rejects him immediately. And he goes off by himself at that point. So what you see in this episode, in the Darla episode, you see he comes back to her after like two years of like feeding on rats, I guess, and being all tortured and shit. And he's, he's like, I can't take it anymore. I want, I want you to take me back. I want to be the way that I was before. So he, even though he has a soul now, he hasn't just magically become good. He hates the, the torture. He hates the torment that his soul has given him. So he tries to be bad again, essentially. So what you're seeing in all these flashbacks in both episodes, um, Fool for Love and Darla, you're seeing in all of these flashbacks, um, all the flashbacks in Fool for Love, period, from that entire, like, essentially, I didn't put this together until just now, so maybe you haven't either. So, hey, I got information for you guys, <laughs> if that's the case. Um, the second that Spike was born into vampirism, the second... He was born into vampirism. Angel already had a soul because it happened during this time period when, um, which, you know, that is kind of inconsistent because, you know, later we see moments throughout the series of Buffy where like, or before we've seen it, where like Spike kind of refers to like, you know, being bad with Angel back in the day, but that really never happened quite happened. I mean, I guess Angel was trying to be bad for a short time again when he begs Darla to take him back, but it doesn't look like he succeeds at it, you know? Um, so Spike never really knew the evil of Angelus until he lost his soul again after he and Buffy had sex in season two. So that was really, so that kind of like 
I'm sure they weren't meaning for all of this to make sense, but that kind of makes sense to me too. Like Spike hated him so much. And obviously it was because they've always had a rivalry and also because like him being bad again was taking attention away from Drusilla and also because Spike was hurt at the time and, you know, all that stuff plays into it. And that's probably what the writers were thinking about playing into it. But also it makes sense that his reaction, Spike's reaction to Angelus actually seeing Solus Angelus for the first time would be a pretty big, like, oh, God, no, I don't like you. You're more bad than me. Of course Spike would have a problem with that, right? Anyway, um, so where are we? Uh, so that's just interesting. I never made that connection before that, like, Spike has actually never been around desold Angel, except for that short period of time in season two when he didn't have a soul. That's it. As long as he's known Angel, that's it. Um, so I just had never put, I had never really put the timeline of Angel together before now. This is the first time, because I've never really seriously analyzed the Angel show. Um, I've, this is my third time through it, I think, but the other times I've watched it, I've just kind of been paying the minimal attention, attention, I guess. Um, but anyway, so it's just interesting to me that he tried to go back to Darla and tried to rehash his old bad days and he couldn't do it. And you see, there's a really cool crossover moment that like is not done in a heavy handed way at all. But, um, so in the Darla episode, you see Angel like encounter like a nice white family during the Boxer Rebellion. I didn't like that like this family just happened to be white. Like they were in China. Like it could have been some random Chinese family, right? But no, that would be too humanizing of a character that isn't of a non-white character in the, in the Whedon verse, right? We can't have that. But so he encounters them in an alleyway. He sees this family of like four, a mom, a dad, and two kids, I think, or one kid. I don't know. Um, there was definitely like a tiny baby, but I don't remember if there was a second kid. I feel like there was. Anyway, doesn't matter. Family. He sees a family like cowering during like a crazy rebellion, which this happened, the Boxer Rebellion in China happened from 1898 to 1901. Um, and it had something to do with, I didn't, I tried to look it up on Wikipedia, but I didn't when I just can't understand war things. I get so confused, but it had something to do with like in China, they were fighting against, I don't know if the, it was the boxers that were fighting against it or the other side, but somebody was fighting against Christianity coming into China. So, um, yeah, anyway. And boxer was referring to like martial artists. They called it, they called it boxing back then. Um, but that's as much information as my little brain was able to put together. So <laughs> that's more than I knew about the boxer rebellion before today, but it's still not very much. So, um, he sees them in the alley and he's the only one that sees them and he leaves the alley and runs into Darla at the very end of the alley. And she's like, is anything interesting going on back there? And he's like, nope, nothing to see here. And that's when they run into Spike and Drusilla and Spike has just killed his first slayer. So this is like post-coital Spike and Drusilla because they totally did it after 
Spike killed that Slayer. And um, there's a little moment where Drusilla kind of looks past Angel and she's like, I smell, smell fear. And Angel's like, yep, this whole place reeks of it. Let's go on board of this rebellion. And But he does all of it in a terrible Irish accent. My God, why did they even let David Boreanaz do it? Like, it would have been less distracting for him to just have his regular accent that he always has. <laughs> you know? Ooh, I forgot to light a candle. Just because it's daylight doesn't mean we shouldn't light a candle, right, guys? Okay. <laughs> it's lit. We're good. It's lit! Okay. Uh, I think I'm, like, going ahead. But anyway, you see this moment in Fool for Love from Spike's perspective. And since you're seeing it from Spike's perspective, um, you don't know what Angel's doing. You think that he is jealous of Spike because Spike just killed a Slayer, but really his reaction to Spike telling him that he just killed a Slayer is disgust. And you don't know that he's protecting people in an alleyway in that episode, but it's the same scene playing out. I don't know. It was just kind of, it was super cool to watch these two episodes on the same day. So I would recommend it. And I don't think it matters like which one you watch first because they don't, they're not like crossover episodes that are dependent upon each other in any way. It just helps you put together the storylines and the flashback sequences, because those are the only parts that cross over in either of these episodes. Um, okay, what other? I think I skipped ahead in my notes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, you get to see flashbacks of how Darla becomes a vampire, and I kind of liked her origin story. You know, like, in that scenario, it's like, yeah, sure, make me a vampire, go ahead. So it's like, she's dying of syphilis, and you find out that she was a prostitute, but you can assume that she was sort of wealthy because she has servants tending to her. And there's a mention of like her owning property or something. So she's not like a destitute prostitute. She was doing pretty well for herself. And the fact that she was in like, um, like barely colonial Virginia or something. She was like 1607 or some shit like Jamestown or something. Anyway, she's considering that she would have been one of very few women. Like, cause that whole like settlement was a bunch of men and like a couple of women historically. So she probably was make it bank being one of the only women there at that time that, um, one of the only white women there at that time, I guess. So, um, but she wasn't like super poor or anything. Um, so she's dying of syphilis and the master comes and he's all cloaked and he's disguising himself as a priest and he like has everyone else leave the room and he just, he kind of basically, it, it seemed almost like informed consent, you know, he, I mean, he didn't explicitly tell her what he was going to do. He was, you know, using flowery vampire language, but I think she understood. She, she didn't, like, scream or anything. She didn't seem scared of him at all. Like, she was literally in her deathbed about to die. And she... I think Darla started out as a bad person, too. Like... Like, she seems interesting. Like, I would love to kind of see more about her life before she got syphilis and was on her deathbed. But 
you know, she seemed kind of sassy and interesting in that moment, but she also didn't seem to have a lot of moral integrity and not because she was a whore. She just kind of like, and not because she was rejecting God or whatever. She's like, God never did anything for me. Like, you know, I relate to that statement, but, um, I think, I don't know. I just get the impression that like, she was totally fine with, yeah, Satan, take me. It's fine. Whatever. Like maybe she was just sassy. Maybe she wasn't. It's really not enough to tell in this moment, actually, but I can imagine that like Darla as a person wasn't that great of a person. Um, we find out that she, even she doesn't remember, like her name Darla was given to her by the master who made her a vampire. She doesn't even remember what her name was before. So I don't think we ever find out because she doesn't remember and she would be the only one that could tell us because, you know, everybody else is dead. <laughs> Unless the master remembered what her original name was. We also get to see a moment where like, um, Darla goes to talk to the leader of the Romani tribe that um, cursed Angel with bringing back his soul. We get to see a moment where she's talking to him and she's bargaining with him. And she's like telling him that she will spare his entire family um, if he takes the soul away again. And it's possible that that bargain would have worked, except that we get like a little shot of like Spike coming out of a, coming out of a trailer or something. A trailer? A caravan? Something? <laughs> where I get, we're supposed to see that as like where his family was being kept. And he was like burping as he came out. So I was like, well, shit. Sorry, your family's already dead. So her bargaining chip with being able to save his family didn't work because Spike just ate them. Um, so interesting that, like, Spike is, you know, in that moment, if you take that tiny moment, if he hadn't eaten that guy's family, what if that guy had consented and taken away Angel's soul? And then Angel would have just been a terrible vampire and never... None of this would have happened. We would be spared the angel show. <laughs> anyway. Um, blah, blah, blah. This just funny moment where the master was like saying of Angel and Darla, I give it a century. Tops. They're not going to last. Um, we find out, okay, so Lindsay's like falling for Darla or something. And I don't know why, but whatever. And he takes her with him to work one day because he doesn't want to leave her alone. And the, the head guy at Wolfram and Hart, or like the head guy that we see, a higher up guy that we see, I don't even fucking know his name, whatever. He tells Lindsay that she's way ahead of schedule because she's going crazy already. And that's when you find out that Lindsay didn't know what the fucking plan was. He didn't understand how much they were fucking with both Darla and Angel. So apparently, like, Wolfram and Hart's entire plan, I don't even totally understand it, but their entire plan is that they knew, and we haven't found this out yet, so just a reminder, this is not a spoiler-free podcast, but we're going to find out in the next episode or two of Angel that... Darla is not only like being brought back as human meant that she is being brought back in 
in her human body, her original state, which means that she is again dying of syphilis. So there's also a cute little moment of foreshadowing. In one of the flashbacks, Drusilla says to Darla, I could be your mummy, which in my mind, because I see Drusilla as the Queen of Cups, she is a fortune teller. She is a psychic. She sees the future. She has prophetic dreams because she was a potential slayer and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway. Um, oh, you guys. Oh, okay. So in a recent episode of Buffering the Vampire Slayer, the Buffy podcast that I listened to, um, they interviewed Juliet Landau, who plays Drusilla. And they told her about a fan theory, and I didn't even know that other fans had this theory besides me. I mean, it makes sense. So it's not like I'm claiming someone stole my idea. Like, it totally makes sense that more than one person would just have this thought. But they asked her, um, they told her about the fan theory that Drusilla was a potential slayer since she has the prophetic dreams and all that stuff. And... Juliet Landau had never heard that theory before, and she was like, that's actually perfect. I, t I totally vibe with that. I think that's that's right. I think that's right. <clears throat> and I do think it's something that, like, didn't really occur to the writers because they weren't actually paying that much attention to the Drusilla character. They were paying less attention than we are. So, anyway. So she says to Darla at one point, I could be your mummy. And it's possible they put that in because they knew that Drusilla was going to make Darla in this current timeline into a vampire again. And so she thus becomes her mummy. But um, I just like the thought that like Drusilla knew that. Drusilla back in 1880 knew on the night that she made Spike into a vampire, she knew that someday she would need to make Dr Darla into a vampire again. I just love that thought. Like, that totally explains why Drusilla is completely nuts, because she experiences all time at once, because she can see everything that's going to happen. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> anyway. Um, I'm obsessed with Drusilla. So that's one reason why, like, it is actually important for me to watch the Angel episodes right now. Like, I can't promise that I will always watch the Angel episodes. I mean, I started the season with not watching, like, the first three. But the fact that Drusilla is back now, she's going to be in the storyline in Angel for at least a few more episodes. Um, I'm in. I'm all in for that. <laughs> yes. Okay. I love Drusilla. Um, I'm looking at my notes. Sorry, I'm being quiet. She doesn't remember her human name. Blah, blah, blah. I already said that. Darla's, like, calling Angel. And in the current timeline, she's, like, asking him for help. And he, of course, sees it as, like, she... He understands what she's going through right now because, you know, essentially she isn't sold again, much the same way he was. It was different circumstances, but still. And she has what he wants. He wants to just be human. That's what he wants. And she has that. So it's like he, under he understands what she's going through right now in a specific way that no one else can. So when she reaches out to him, he thinks it's because she wants help with feeling, figuring out how to integrate this whole soul thing. Um, 
Okay, I'm almost at the end, almost at the end of my angel notes. Thank God, because I've been talking about it so long already. Um, you get you get another flashback. This whole episode is just like going back and forth between current timeline and like flashback of Darla and Angel's lives together over the years. Um, you get so Darla is completely perceptive of everything that's going on. She kind of she understands that moment when Angel's trying to like protect them. Or protect that family that's in the alleyway. She she senses something going on. So she tells... We, we get this scene. It's like much later in the evening or something like that. Of that same night. Um, you get this scene of like... Darla tells him like she went back. She went back to the alley. And she doesn't explicitly say it. But you can assume that she killed the family. And... Um, Anyway, so it's like she's home waiting for him later in the evening and he comes home as if he's just fed and he's being like weird about like she wants to know like, oh, so you just you just fed on who a rapist, an evildoer, some rats. Like, apparently, he's only been since their reconciliation. I don't know how much, how long we are we are to believe that they were reconciled at this point when he had a soul and he wanted her back. When he was saying that he would be bad again, just, just so he could have her back. Um, I don't know the answer to that. But... Um, she kind of points out that all he's, and he's, he says something like, well, you've seen me feed on men. And she's like, yeah, rapists, murderers, evildoers. Like she's chastising him for being the Dexter of vampires, you know, <laughs> um, or Lestat. That's, that's something that Lestat usually did in the Anne Rice novels. He only, he could read people's minds. So he would only feed on terrible people. Um, anyway, so she like chastises him for that and she basically she tests him. She's she's her love is conditional. So like she wants him back because she misses him, but only if he becomes a bad vampire again. And he's at this point he's so desperate for companionship in the world or something and he doesn't want to be tortured by his soul, so he's trying to be the bad vampire again, but he can't do it. So she reveals that she has the baby in a carriage. She has the baby that was the baby of the couple in the alley that he tried to protect. Um, so she's like, do it. Kill this baby. Prove to me that you can do this. And we don't actually get a resolution to this scene. Hmm. Interesting. I. It's possible we got something that I just didn't see, but it cuts away at this point. So did Angel actually eat that baby? Was he desperate enough to stay with Darla in the moment that he did that bad thing? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Let me know if you guys know if I missed some subtle clue that he did or did not eat the baby. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, and then there's just like these knowing glances in that night. Like, you know, after that whole alleyway moment, that's when you get the like, posse scene when that you see in both episodes the Buffy episode and the Angel episode where you see um you see Angel Darla Drusilla and Spike like walking like the badass posse scene through the, like the box of rebellion fires all around them and <laughs> Spike does that cute little hop over a barrel which is just hilarious <laughs> um you see that moment from 
Darla's perspective, essentially, in this episode, where she's kind of, it almost looks like she's looking at Angel admiringly when you see it from Spike's perspective, the same shot from Spike's perspective in Fool for Love. But when you see it from her perspective in this episode, Darla, you can see that she's side-eyeing him, actually. This episode shows more depth from Julie Benz as an actress that I think I've ever noticed before. Like, maybe she has more to her. Maybe I need to give her more credit. I'm never going to like her voice affectation because I do think it's an affectation. Some people do have those breathy voices, but I don't know if Julie Benz is one of them. Although I've never seen an interview with her, like, out of character, but she has that breathy voice, both as Rita on Dexter and as Darla on Buffy. So it just is too much for me. So maybe I haven't, I've not seen her in any other roles. So maybe she doesn't do that. Maybe she doesn't choose to use that voice in every character. And I get it from the perspective of she's the first character we see in the entire Buffy universe. The very first character that we see in the first scene of the first episode of Buffy. And in that moment, when she's like impersonating like a schoolgirl or whatever, I understand the choice to have that affectation, but I would have liked her to drop it. Like, I almost wonder if I, if I had ever interviewed Julie Benz, I would ask her, did you pick that breathy voice as a character choice for the very first episode of Buffy? And then you suddenly felt trapped into using it when you didn't realize you were going to be a character in this universe for so many years. <laughs> I wonder if that's the case. Anyway, that's just my little side note. So this is a really good episode of Angel. Um, oh, okay. So the, the, the end of the episode, Angel does save Darla. Like, I think they were going to, they made it, Wolfram and Hart made it look like they were going to kill Darla, but I don't think they actually wanted to. I think they were just baiting Angel. And so he comes and he saves her and he takes her back to the hotel and he's, you know, having the same kind of like conversation from his perspective. He thinks that this is a like addiction recovery program, Angel's addiction recovery program that he administered to Faith before. Um, he thinks that that's what this is, and because Darla kept asking him for help throughout the episode, she wants his help because he understands what she's going through. But what? But you find out in this moment the help that he that she wants from him is she wants him to turn her into a vampire again. She wants him to end her suffering by turning her into a vampire again. That's what she wants, and of course he says no to that, and she leaves. She's just like, don't come find me ever again, bitch. I'm out. So she has no intention of like trying to integrate the soul into who she is or becoming a better person or anything like that. She doesn't have it in her. Like some people are bad even when they have a soul. And I think that Darla is one of those people. Anyway, good episode of Angel. I think it's worth it. You know, if I were going through which I should be doing, but I haven't been. If I were going through to like pick the episodes of Angel that it actually makes sense to watch in a future rewatch, this would be one of them for sure. Okay, let's talk about Buffy, shall we? 35 minutes into the episode. <laughs> okay, 
So this episode begins with like a pretty typical like Buffy in a cemetery making quips at a vampire and he's just a regular vampire, just one-on-one. She's quipping and he stakes her with her own stake. I really like this as the beginning of an episode. Like, you know, Buffy at some point in the series is going to need to be accidentally staked with her own stake. So this is when it happens. Fool for Love, as I've said before, is a very important episode of Buffy. And I was a little, every time there's like an episode that I really, really, really love, I'm afraid that it's going to fall apart whenever I watch it in this context of like being super analytical of it and stuff like that. That does not happen this time. Like this episode holds the fuck up, guys. Okay. Let's see. Where are we? Um, I'm going to read the description from the Nikki Stafford Buffy episode guide entitled Bite Me. Um, when Buffy is seriously hurt on patrol, on patrol, she wants to learn more about how her predecessors were killed and turns to the only person who knows. Spike. Okay, so this is a very... This is Spike's origin episode, essentially. You know, like, I'm sure we've seen flashbacks to Spike before, but this is the one. You know, like, this has all the important scenes where you see that the whole reason why he was called William the Bloody was because of his bloody, awful poetry. Um, I actually like his poetry. I mean, is is that wrong? I don't know. I thought it was good. I mean, the only line you get to hear of his poetry at all whatsoever is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recite it now. Why not? Let's just open our discussion of Fool for Love by um, a line from William the Bloody, William Pratt. I think was his full name. Poetry from 1880. He's left-handed while he writes it. Yes, while he writes it. Other times, no. Um, Okay. My heart expands. Tis grown a bulge in it. Inspired by your beauty. Effulgent. And we're supposed to think that's bad. And maybe it is. But maybe I just like bad poetry, I guess. Because I think that sounds beautiful. And it's the quote of the episode. So deal with it. So there it is. Um, <laughs> um, at first I wrote like Buffy doesn't get all existential about the fact that she was just staked, but this entire episode is driven by the fact that she gets all existential about it. So yeah, but I was just kind of impressed that like whenever she's describing it to Riley afterwards, um, which super cool moment, like Riley actually saves her life in this moment. She probably would have died at the hands of that vampire if it weren't for Riley and she does not thank him. She does not explicitly acknowledge the fact that he just fucking saved her life, god damn it. I mean, come on. Anyway. So he jumps in and saves her life while she's just sort of like she's in shock or something because she was just staked. Like I don't think it was that I mean it was a bad injury for sure, but she's the slayer. She should have continued I think normally she would have been able to continue that fight fight and at least go ahead and slay the vampire and then collapse or something. But, um, and maybe she would have been able to to rally and do that if Riley hadn't showed up. Maybe she would have been able to rally if Riley hadn't shown up. But anyway, so he jumps in and saves her and then he continues saving her by, because he has combat medical training, he's able to stitch her up in the comfort of her own home, which that would be great, wouldn't it? Like, that's the real reason to marry a doctor. Because they could help you when you need it. 
not because they're rich, because you don't need to be rich to have medical care in your own home. That's the reason. (laughs) Anyway, so he like stitches her up and patches her up. And then, um, yeah. And then there's this cute moment. Oh, wait. Okay. I was like, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So the the reason that I thought maybe Buffy's not really getting all existential about this. The reason why I thought that was because she, when she's talking to Riley about it, because he's like, so what's up? How did, how did you get defeated? Whatever. Because he didn't see the whole thing. And she's like, a vampire, just a regular one. I just had a, she really did have a momentary lapse in attention and she got staked because of it. It's possible she was being slightly negligent because she's been doing so much hardcore training lately that like she probably just isn't really nervous at all when she's fighting a regular vampire now. And that is the type of situation where you would possibly get killed. I mean, that actually makes sense. That's the way that a slayer like Buffy is going to go out. It's going to be something completely random like that, you know? Um, okay. So I just thought she was, she was at first, it seemed like she was just being kind of casual, like, yep, it was just a regular vampire and I had a momentary lapse of attention and that just happened. But then she goes to, and I guess maybe that's just, that's how she's framing it to Riley because she's acting like nothing is a big deal. And I guess this tracks with the fact that she does not open up to Riley at all. She doesn't show any vulnerability. She doesn't open up to him at all. Even in this moment, she's just kind of shrugging her shoulders like, yeah, no big deal. I'm going to heal fast. It's fine. Whatever. And then she goes immediately to Giles to be like, we need to find out how all the Slayers were killed so I can make sure that it never happens to me. So she is getting way existential about it. Um, and that's how, well, first of all, interesting that, like, um, Giles has his minty mug in this moment. That's also interesting. But <laughs> I got to point out every um, instance of the minty mug. Um, I should have been keeping track this whole time, guys. Oh man, missed opportunity. I should have been like writing down the episodes of the Minty Mog sighting so we can see exactly how many times it shows up throughout the course of the show. Um, but anyway, there it is. Um, one thing that struck me in this moment, like they're going through all these old Watcher diaries and stuff. And I'm like, huh. So, I mean, Giles has been fired from the council. But has that episode happened yet where he gets his salary reinstated? No, that happens later this season, I think. Doesn't it? Hold on. I got to find out, guys. It's called Checkpoint, I think, is the name of the episode. Okay, I have to look that up because I have to know if it's happened yet. Oh, okay. It hasn't happened yet. Um, So he hasn't been reinstated as a watcher. He's been fired from the Watcher's Council. So my question is... Does every current active watcher inherit all the old watchers' journals? Why does Giles have them? Unless whenever he got fired as a watcher, they didn't think to ask for them back. But you would think something like that would be a pretty big deal. If it if it gets passed to every active watcher and a new watcher is activated quite frequently because of the low expiration, because of the uh, short expiration mark on the package of the Buffy 
the Slayer Cheeto. God, that was clunky. Okay, anyway. Um, I don't know. It, I've never, I'm not supposed to think this hard about it, but just the fact that he has all these Watcher journals, you'd think that the Watcher's Council wouldn't have let him keep those when they fired him. But he still has them. So, whatever. Anyway, that's just me being nitpicky. Um, I just had to mention that Buffy is wearing a terrible, the shirt that she's wearing whenever Riley stitches her up is like this beige, ruched awfulness that could only have existed from the years 2000 to 2003. We're in it, guys. We are firmly in the worst fashion of Buffy, and we're going to stay there until it's over. And it's sad. It's sad, really. I just, I hope that never comes back. It just seemed like a very isolated moment in fashion history. 2000 to like 2005 was just bad, unequivocally bad. And I know fashion usually repeats itself, but I hope this this one doesn't. Like Uggs and weird, badly done peasant tops and, ugh, anyway. <laughs> That her in that shirt just triggered me because I'm like, oh shit. I mean, it's not consistently terrible fashion all the time at this point in Buffy, but it's coming. And this shirt reminds us that it's coming. <laughs> Let me know if you guys have the same bad reaction to, anyway, that kind of thing. Okay, then we get this awesome... So Dawn's going to cover for Buffy as far as household chores are concerned. And Riley's going to go patrol... And Buffy's going to spend the evening hanging out with Spike at the bronze. Um, so when Riley goes to patrol, Buffy talks him into taking the gang with him. So it's um, Anya, Willow, and Xander. And they're like eating a bag of chips and just being super cute and casual. Because they've been on patrol a gazillion times before. You know, they're not taking it as seriously as Riley is. And it just kind of breaks my heart a little bit. Like, this moment is super funny. The scene is super funny. Anya with her scarf, because it keeps, like, falling down, and she, like, throws it back over her shoulder, and it's cute the way she does it. And Xander is in his best Xanderness. Like, at this point, Xander as a character is going to be pretty consistently fine. Like, I don't even know of any particular moments where he pisses me off. I mean, every time Joss Whedon is writing the episode, he's going to put some bullshit misogynistic stuff in his mouth in Xander's mouth as a character but um, most of the time he's pretty consistently like kind of a more stable adult dude but he still has his quirkiness and he's a likable character right now we're in the good era of Xander so anyway um, that's just a cute moment with them like patrolling with Riley and everything but it's kind of heartbreaking to think of it from Riley's point of view you know like his approach to patrolling is the same as his approach is because of his military background, you know, and he is still feeling very isolated because he doesn't have a purpose because he doesn't. And every time he suggests getting help from some of his old friends or something, Buffy completely shuts him down, which makes sense that Buffy wouldn't want that as part of her life, but and part of her strategies for being a slayer. Like, it just doesn't mix, Buffy. You should have never dated someone that had, like, a military personality. It just, even though I've argued many times before that of the Buffy boyfriends, he's the one that makes the most 
actual adult practical sense, and I stand by that, he's still not a good choice for Buffy in general. He's just not, just because he's the best choice that we have available. Um, it's because <laughs> our choices are vampire, vampire, and human that's a nice person. <laughs> you know, those are our choices. You gotta choose Riley. You gotta. Even though he's not actually, the choice should be herself, which is the choice she makes at the end of the series, so that makes sense. Anyway. Um, okay, so Buffy goes to talk to Spike because he's killed two slayers. Um, and she wants her expiration date to be long like a Cheeto. Live long and Cheeto. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there was a sweet little moment between Giles and Buffy that I didn't even mention, like where he's being all weird and stuttery, talking about, like, he doesn't, he's uncomfortable in this conversation, talking about the way the Slayers have died and, and how thorough the journals of the Watchers were of that that expiration date of their Slayer. And he's, and she's like, what's the deal with that? Why can't, why do they just stop? Why, why don't we get details of the final battle, blah, blah, blah. And Giles is like, because it's fucking painful, bitch. I don't want you to die. <laughs> That's exactly what Giles said. <laughs> Quote, because it's fucking painful, bitch. <laughs> Can you imagine Giles saying that? <laughs> anyway. And it's just a sweet little moment because of course he gives a shit about Buffy. Of course he does. Um, anyway. Oh, I didn't even mention the cute little moment where, like, Dawn covers for Buffy. Like, she doesn't even know what's going on, but her mom comes in right after Buffy gets stitched up, and she doesn't want her mom to know that she's been injured. And so she's going to keep it a secret from her because of all the, you know, shit that her mom's going through. And in a way, this little moment, they didn't really show that, but this little moment possibly made Riley feel like he was being thrown a bone a little bit because he actually got to see a tiny bit of vulnerability from Buffy and he knows something that one of the things that she wants to keep a secret from a loved one, he's actually in on it this time. I wonder if he like, I don't know. <laughs> why, why am I wor so worried about how Riley feels? Because it's just not fair. You know, his entire life was taken from, out from under him. You know, he had to lose his brotherhood of military dudes or whatever. And that's something that's important to him. That way of life was something that he chose on purpose. And it was swept out from under him because anyway, and he essentially chose a completely different life and put his allegiance in Buffy and she's not having it. So it's just sad. He's ready to be all in with her, but she is so not ready and he's going to make terrible decisions in the next couple episodes. It's possible it's next episode that it happens. Let's 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 look ahead. Let's look ahead. Okay, Shadow, when the doctors discover a shadow on Joyce's cat scan, Buffy must face the reality that her mother's condition is more serious than she thought. Meanwhile, Glory conjures up. Okay. I mean, I think it's that episode. I think it's the next episode that we see Riley, like, cheating on Buffy, essentially, with a vampire. I think we see it next episode. If not, it's going to be the one after that. But anyway, let's not jump ahead too much. Um, this is just a cute little moment where Dawn just sort of instinctively, 
like covers for Buffy, and it's just a sweet little sister moment, and I I liked it. I liked it. Okay, I just have to point out because I always fucking do. Where the fuck is Tara? <laughs> Apparently, at this point, Amber Benson was not like she just wasn't ready to be there for every single episode or something. But but I just. <sighs> I know I say it every fucking time, but like all that would have had to happen is Willow would have, should have, but, but, but somebody could have said, where's Tara tonight? And Willow could have said, oh, she's studying. That's it. <laughs> Come on, man. Okay. So I really, really enjoyed like the Allison, the, the entire like, you know, Allison Hannigan as Willow and Nicholas Brendan as Xander and, um, Oh, shit. What's Anya's name? I know it. Okay, I do not know why. I just forgot. Emma Caulfield's name. But the three of them together, like, in this moment, like, it's just the physical comedy is so beautiful when they're eating the chips. And, like, Riley asks them to leave the chips behind. And Willow grabs a giant handful and then sets down the bag. I hope they went back for it because that's littering. But (laughs) she, like, sets down the bag in the cemetery and then she's just, like eating and dropping the pile of chips that's in her hand. And it's just the cutest thing ever. I love it. Anyway. And then Xander refers to Riley as a big jungle cat. (laughs) I love it. So Buffy and Spike hanging out in the bronze. She has to, as part of his conditions, he makes her buy him spicy buffalo wings. But you don't actually ever see them eating the spicy buffalo wings. But anyway, then they play pool and he's telling the story and the editing is beautiful when he's telling the story of how he killed the two different slayers because it cuts back and forth and it's just really good. This is just a good episode. Um, it's heartbreaking whenever you see him like so his first super love interest is the Cecily person, which we later know as the character Halfrick, but I don't think we've met her as Halfrick yet, but it's the same actress. And later we get like a little nod to that. I think it's in the Angel it's in Angel season five, I think. Um, where there's like a little Spike sees her or something is like Cecily? And she's like, no, no, or something. I don't, there's some kind of like tiny little moment where I don't think they were meaning for the Cecily character to later have become Halfrick. Um, but we never get her origin story. Like, how did this person that Spike was in love with in his human life in 1880 become a vengeance demon later on? I'd love to know that story, but, um, I don't think they were intending for us to ever recognize her once she becomes Halfrick, but we do. Anyway, so you see Cecily and this, it's really sweet, you know, whenever he says, he says to her, I know I'm a bad poet, but I'm a good man. And I just thought that was so cute because he genuinely was. There is an element of who you are. This series has established that there's an element of who you are as a person that comes through in your vampirism, in your vampire life. And it makes sense that Spike being, you know, kind of a bumbling, lovesick person that is actually a genuinely good person 
could retain some of that in his vampire life. I mean, he's not, he doesn't really remain a good person, but anyway, so he says to her something like, I want you to see me. And then Drusilla, who meets him later in the night, she plucks all these things from his mind and she tells him exactly what he needs to hear. And one of the thing, the very, one of the very first things she says to him is, I see you. So in Drusilla, he gets the validation that he never got from anyone before. And something that I need to point out um, from the TPN Buffy guide on YouTube, he pointed out that the way that Spike dies as a human and is reborn into vampirism, he dies aroused in tremendous pain and heartbroken. This moment where he is completely heartbroken because he finally tells this person that we don't know how long he's been in love with Cecily, but this is the night that it comes out that he's in love with her. And he tells her and she tells him that he is beneath her. So he's completely heartbroken when he meets Drusilla, who grabs his crotch in this scene, which is kind of subtle, but I think that's definitely what was happening there. And yeah, so while he's dying, he's aroused, in pain, and heartbroken. And one of the theories that um, the guy from TPN does all the time that he brings up about Spike's character, which I think is one of his theories, and I think it's completely true is that Spike continually conflates sex with violence, love with violence. He thinks that that's the only way. And it makes sense if that was, that was the moment that he was born into vampirism. He was aroused and in pain. Aroused and being, um, and violence was being enacted on him, you know? Um, so it, totally tracks <laughs> to who he fucking is and he's always been lovesick so so Drusilla finds him while he's crying after Cecily rejects him um in flashback mode obviously and she says I see you and then she says burning baby fish swimming all around your head <laughs> and later she refers to the king of cups and this led me to start thinking like because I'm a tarot nerd I'm constantly like trying to think of like which Buffy characters are which court cards, blah, blah, blah. And I've made a lot of decisions on that front. Giles is King of Swords. Buffy is Page of Wands. Willow is Page of Pentacles. Um, I don't know what Sam... Anyway. Anyway. Cup suit, I think, is going to be all vampires. And I think I've decided that today. And the fact that Drusilla is referring to King of Cups, she says, um, she says to him in this scene, or it's maybe in a different scene or something. She says, yeah, it's in a different scene. It's during the Boxer Rebellion scene. She says, the King of Cups expects a picnic. And um, I'm just like, yeah, King of Cups. She's referring to tarot. <laughs> anyway. I think, now, I could be persuaded outside of some of these thoughts, but I think that Angel is the king of cups because he is able to control his emotions at a certain point. He, In his later stages of development, he can control his emotions. So I think he's the king of cups because the king of cups is very in, in control of his emotions. 
But Spike, I have long thought, and this episode really backs it up for me, Spike is the Knight of Cups. The Knight of Cups is a character that is like the Casanova of the tarot core cards. This is the this is a person that's very, very emotional and can really sweep you off your feet. And I just totally think that Spike is Knight of Cups. And I've long thought that Drusilla is Queen of Cups. So I don't know who the Page of Cups is going to be. I don't think it's Darla. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> That's just my little tarot aside with Mixtress. Um, she also, like Drusilla, like she, so she tells him that she sees him. And she tells him, you walk in worlds that others can only imagine. And she's just really wooing him in this moment. She's telling him exactly what he needs to hear. Like, he is a child of fantasy and emotion and lovesickness. And she wants that from him. And she, the way that TPN was kind of describing this was that she was manipulating him in this moment. But I like to think, I mean, yes, she was probably using a little bit of manipulation tactics here. But I like to think that Drusilla truly did see who he was and she wanted that. And this is a kind of consensual birth into vampirism, I think, too, much like Darla's was. Like, she literally asks him, do you want it? And of course, when he says yes, he probably thinks he's saying yes to sex, and that's not what it is. So it's not really informed consent. But when it comes to being turned into a vampire, you know, you got to take little, little morsels of consent where you can get them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's kind of a consent, even though it's not really informed consent. And I like the, I just like that quote, burning baby fish swimming all around your head, because you could totally illustrate a Knight of Cups card with Spike, with literal burning baby fish swimming above his head. Like if I ever create a Buffy tarot deck, that is going to be the image. And some people will get it and some people won't. You know, that burning baby fish, somebody will be like, oh, that's that thing that Drusilla said to him and fool for love. Anyway, if you guys want to steal that idea from me, then you have to give me a free copy of that deck and I will um, unbox it and review it on my tarot YouTube channel. Okay, thank you. Because <laughs> I can't really draw that well. Like, I guess I could teach myself. I don't know if I would. I would love to have a Buffy tarot deck, but I don't know if I'd want to make an exclusively Buffy tarot deck. I think I'd want to. Anyway, whatever. Although, whenever I think about it, I can be like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that character, totally. Okay. Anyway, let's let's come back. Let's come back to reality. <laughs> the reality of a vampire uh, TV show, yes. Okay. Anya and her scarf. Okay, we're back to the Box of Rebellion. King of Cups expects a picnic. Spike at one point, like... Um, Angel is being really mean to Spike, and, and you... And we now know that it's because we don't know if we only watched this episode, but if you watch this episode and the Angel episode, you know that in this moment where he's like chastising Spike for being so like rebellious and bad and blah, 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 it's because, okay, wait a second, wait a second. So the knight that Spike 
gets turned into a vampire is 1880. And the Boxer Rebellion's 1899 to 1901. So that means that his angel's little, like, getting Darla to take him back moment, which means that later than later in the night that, no, that's the Boxer Rebellion. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying to put the timeline together from these two episodes in my brain and it's just like taking all my brain power. So the Boxer Rebellion, I think is the final straw where like Darla leaves Angel. It must be. It must be because that's the night that he like saves that family from them and she tempts him with the baby. So I'm going to categorically say he did not eat that baby. <laughs> this was the last straw, which means that like him going back to her in 1880 and saying like, which means that for 20 years, this group of vampires was together. Angel, Drusilla, Darla, and um, Spike. They were together for 20 years, at least, until Angel separated from them, probably at this point, I would assume. Okay, interesting. So he was able to, like, pretend to be bad for Darla for 20 years. She put up with that shit for put up with that shit. But like from her perspective, she put up with that shit for 20 years. She took him back and she wanted to believe that he could be bad again, but he couldn't. Okay. Okay. I'm just sorry. I'm putting this all together. It's possible that I'm like way behind all y'all and you put it together a long time ago, but this is my first time. So yeah. Okay. Um, where are we? A slayer must always reach for her weapon. I've already got mine. Okay, so we're going back to Boxer Rebellion. King of Cups expects a picnic. And we're flashing back and forth between the present moment and the Boxer Rebellion. And lesson the first, a slayer must always reach for her weapon because I've already got mine. So it's it's kind of established in this scene where he's killing his first slayer in the Boxer Rebellion. That, like, she didn't, she dropped her weapon or something. And she didn't react fast enough and that's why he was able to kill her in that moment and then it's also this is the first time i think this is one of the first times that we're seeing lately at least buffy doing a lot of beating spike up which she's doing in this episode and and this is going to become a thing where like buffy beats spike up all the fucking time in all the episodes leading up to when they finally stop fighting and fuck which actually they're fighting and fucking in that first time that they have sex in season six. So it's always sex and violence is conflated in their relationship too. Um, which is why we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's, let's not skip way the fuck ahead. I'm trying to skip a year ahead right now. Okay. Why do you guys let me do this? <laughs> if I had a co-host, they could reel me in, <laughs> but I don't. Okay, you guys, I don't have a drink. I think it's lunchtime, but I need to finish talking about this episode because that's the way I am. I can't just stop and have lunch in the middle. Come on, that doesn't make sense. All right, so in this scene where, like, you see Angel telling Spike what a slayer is, he this is at the end of his journey with them. He's very frustrated at this point of all his 20 years of trying to be evil again to be able to stay with Darla. Um, 
So it totally makes sense how how frustrated he is with Spike in this moment because Spike is the bad that he wishes he could be, but he can no longer be. And at this point, he's kind of over being bad and he's starting to like gather his strength. So it's interesting that like Angel choosing to go back to Darla for this 20 years, even while he has a soul. It's interesting to me. I don't know. Like, that helped him gather his strength to have a soul. Even though he didn't have someone that understood him and he was trying to be a person that he really wasn't to remain in a relationship. I mean, interesting relationship dynamics between Darla and Angel. Interesting. Because she was obviously lying to herself by taking him back. Because she needed him to be the bad vampire that he always was. And he changed. And she wasn't willing to accept it. And he... The only way that he could be with her is if he convinced her and himself that he could be bad again. Anyway, I think I'm repeating myself, but it's just... Anyway, I'm just putting all of it together. I'm just putting all of it together, and it's blowing my mind up at the moment. Okay, where are we? Um, So we get to see... In, in both of these, like, both of these times that Spike kills a Slayer, so 1901 or 1900 or whatever during the Boxer Rebellion, um, that's when he gets his, um, his eyebrow scar, which I don't, it looks pretty real to me, so I don't know if this is a scar that James Marshers just has or if it was a character choice that they put in in the beginning. Usually the show isn't quite that consistent, so I would venture to say that he actually has that scar, but I don't know if that's true. Anyway, so I think he does. I feel like there was an interview once where he made a character choice to, like, trim his eyebrows in such a way so that you could see his scar, whereas most of the time he, like, lets his eyebrows grow in and kind of covers the scar. Anyway, so you see him get the scar. He gets it from this first Slayer. And um, in the second, the second time he killed a Slayer was 1977, and that's the jacket. That's his jacket. He took it from her. So that's just cool little moments, obviously, of origins of Spike's character. His eyebrow scar and his jacket. You get the explanation for both of those things. And you get the explanation for why he has been nicknamed William the Bloody and where he got the name Spike, too, because in that same sentence, another person replies to him that they'd rather have a railroad spike put through their head than listen to his poetry. So it's possible he got the name, the idea for the name Spike from that moment. So interesting, right? So that's just like a certain amount of like emotional Knight of Cups self-loathing too. Like he chooses a name that is his badass vampire name. He chose based on an insult that someone gave to him in the last night of his human life. It's interesting, right? Anyway. Maybe none of this shit is interesting. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Spike pokes Buffy's wound. Low blow, Spike. Low blow. Um, Riley goes back. So they decide during that whole scene where, where they were patrolling, patrolling, they see this vampire that had hurt Buffy the night before. They see him go into like a mausoleum with other vampires. So you know that he lives with other vampires in this mausoleum. So he suggests to everyone else that um, it, they're outnumbered, they should come back the next day, or something like that. And 
they should come back in the morning. That's They make a plan to come back in the morning. But you see Riley later in the evening go back there by himself without Xander, Anya, and Willow. He goes back there by himself and he... Um, he goes in with a grenade, he kills the vampire that hurt Buffy, and then he, like, pops a grenade and runs out while the whole mausoleum is exploding. So it was essentially, like, this is Riley really grasping at straws, like, wanting to do the sort of military thing. This would have been something that, like, he and his military friends could have planned this in a more safe way, but he doesn't live in that world anymore, so he had to do it on his own. Plus, he also is trying to prove himself in some macho way for Buffy and also to himself because he doesn't have the same strength that he used to have before his surgery, although he appears to have the same level of strength to us, but we're supposed to think that he doesn't. Anyway, so you see that he's doing something reckless, and I think we even get a moment in the next episode where... Xander and or Willow point this out to Buffy and tell her that this happened because they go to like meet in the morning and the place is blown up and they figure out that Riley went there by himself. So I think this this is dealt with in the next episode, but I'm not totally sure. So there's this whole thing with like, and Spike has some good points in this moment. He tells Buffy that every Slayer has a death wish because, and I never really like listen to this dialogue in quite such a way as this time around. Um, possibly because subtitles. Subtitles are good, guys. Um, but he says to her that death is her art. That she she kills all the time. She sees people in their dying moments all the time. Or demons and vampires she sees in their dying moments all the time. Death is her art. Um, and there's something there's something about death that she wants to know that she and someday that death wish is going to be evident and that's when spike's going to slip in did they really have to say it like that did they really have to say it like that and he's going to have himself a real good day anyway so he's being all like creepy predatory but also doing his thing equating sex with violence and then she is like really like kind of shocked by everything that he's saying because she's resonating with it. We are just now getting like the beginnings of, and I mean, we've had like parallels between the two characters of Spike and Buffy before. Like it makes sense that Buffy would, it makes sense that Buffy keeps ending up with vampires. It does because they kill all the time. She kills all the time. It's a different situation, but they can understand some aspect of her that no one else can, that a normal human boyfriend can't. She'll never be understood by a normal human boyfriend ever, which is why, you know, I think now that the Buffy universe has hundreds and hundreds of slayers, it's probably common for slayers to be with each other, you know? Um, I would think like it would just make more sense. All of the danger that you're in all of the time, all of the craziness, the only people that are going to understand that are other people in your similar circumstances. So that's actually really great for Slayer kind that it not just be a chosen one anymore. It's not only great for humanity, just in general to have more than one Slayer, but also just for love lives. <laughs> don't you think? I don't know. 
I've never really thought about that before, but um, maybe that's that's where Buffy's love will end up eventually when she's a fully baked cookie. Maybe she will end up with another Slayer. I know she does end up with a Slayer momentarily in the comics, but it's just kind of like a little fling thing. Like she just has like a couple of sexy experiences with another Slayer, but it doesn't seem to be like something super like important to her life. It's not a relationship or anything, but that makes sense. Doesn't it? I don't know. And obviously she had something going with Faith. I mean, duh, right? Okay. Anyway, um, this is where it's established that Spike can kind of spar with Buffy. I think this is the first time that that is really established because if he has no actual intention to harm her, and this is just a way for them to get away with having Spike and Buffy fight each other, really. But, and they're not super consistent with it all the time because sometimes he's doing something that we've seen him be, we've seen the chip activate when he's done something similar to someone else. So it's not entirely consistent, but they're just establishing in this moment that like, since he knows he can't actually touch her, since he doesn't actually have an intent to harm, then his chip doesn't go off, which does make sense if it's a neurologically based piece of scientific architecture that it would react to things happening in the brain and surely intention matters, right? Intention matters. That's all I'm saying. So in this moment where he's telling her that death is her art and blah, 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 and she's kind of like shocked by the statement, but also she is resonating with it, but of course she wouldn't admit that to Spike. He leans in to kiss her. Which, come on, Spike, really? You had to know that wasn't going to go well. You had to. But they've been dancing all night in his head. Dancing is fighting. So he thinks that that naturally is going to lead to making out. Which, he'll be right next season. That's going to happen. But Bubby's not admitting that she's into him at this point. And she probably already is to a certain extent. I never really noticed that before, but she really does have this whole sense of denial thing going on that, of course, she wouldn't like Spike. She's very, she's a little too defensive, even from this point. Um, so I think she relates to Spike more than, I didn't realize that maybe her, her attraction to him started this far back, but I think it does. I think it does. Um, Spike tries to kiss her. She throws money at his feet, like in La Traviata, and to pay her whore, um, like that scene in Moulin Rouge, which is based on La Traviata, so that's why I said that. La, Tra La Traviata is an opera. Um, that's just what that scene reminds me of. It's like, you know, she knocks him down and then throws the money at his feet because she was paying him for this story. Where did she get all that goddamn money? I mean, it had to have been from Giles, but Giles is unemployed. She doesn't get paid for being a slayer. Like, anyway. So then we get a scene with, so he he's, he's crying and it's sad because she tells him, you're beneath me. And I don't know. I mean, surely, like, so we see all these flashbacks. Are we to assume that every flashback that we see in this episode was part of the story that Spike was telling Buffy. 
I don't know if we're supposed to think that he told her that Cecily rejected him and told him you're beneath me or not. Because, I mean, it's always been my assumption that he told her that and that's why she told him you're beneath me. But it does seem to be in character of something that Buffy would say to him at this point. So, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that she was using that specifically to hurt him because she knew that Cecily had said it to him? Or do you think that that part of the flashback was just us getting a glimpse into Spike's interiority, but that wasn't part of the story that he was telling Buffy? I just, I want to know. Like, was she saying it because she knew Cecily said it to him, or was she just saying it because it was in the moment and that's what she wanted to say? And it just happened to be so triggering for poor little Spikey just lay in there crying. James Marsters is just one of the best actors ever. This is why he can pull off this character so well. Like you can see both he and Sarah Michelle Gellar have this capacity of like, you can see the emotions change on their face. It's, it's just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Anyway, um, you also get a flashback to, um, Spike and Drusilla, 1998. So this is at the point right after season two, where, um, two? Yes. Two. Three. Three? No, two. Yes, two. <laughs> season two, when Buffy, um, when Spike had, like, taken Drusilla away out of the church, and, um, Buffy and Angel were fighting, and he left town or spike left town with it with drusilla blah 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 names and um so at this point so you get that scene of like he took her away he took drusilla away to wherever i don't remember where the fuck they were in france or something i can't remember but this is where we get the the chaos is it a chaos demon I can't remember what type of demon it's supposed to be, but the all slime and antlers has been established that in um, in Lover's Walk, when we get to see Spike come back in season three, um, and he says that Drew left him for a whatever demon. Have you seen them? They're all slime and antlers, so you get to actually see. It's just like a short little visual gag. You get to see the slime and antlers guy. And Drusilla is... This is kind of like their breakup moment, I think, because she's saying to him, you taste like ashes. And I, I just think that's so, that's, yeah, that's exactly, that's a reason to leave someone when they taste like ashes. You know, I don't know. People think that Drusilla's crazy, crazy, but everything she says makes total sense to me. I don't know. Um, okay, so... So you get that little flashback and then you get the porch scene. So I skipped over this moment, but um, my only comment from that particular scene in my notes is Harmony's hair is so beautiful. So after Spike is crying on the ground with the money thrown at him, he gathers up all his money and you see the emotions change on James Marster's face. You see him get, go from being like super duper hurt to angry and he decides that the solution is to just kill Buffy. Like if she's going to reject him, he's just going to kill her. So he goes home and gets a rifle, which why the fuck does Spike have a rifle? I don't know. 
and he loads it up and Harmony tries to talk him out of it and she looks fucking gorgeous. Let's just give her outfit of the episode because nobody else really has a good one that I remember in this particular episode, but, and it's very dark in the crypt, so you can't really see what Harmony's wearing, but her hair is perfect, beautiful shampoo commercial hair. She looks great. And she's, I think she's wearing like, uh, do you call it a romper when it's like a onesie, but it looks hot? (laughs) She's wearing like a black denim romper or something. And you can't really see what she's wearing, but she looks better than everybody else did in this episode. So we're giving outfit of the episode to Harmony tonight. So he goes over to Buffy's house with the with the rifle, you get to see a scene where Buffy is talking to her mom and her mom's packing a bag because she's going to the hospital because the reason that she's having all the headaches, they're giving her a CAT scan. She's doing tests overnight or something. And so Joyce is packing a bag and I guess she just wasn't going to tell Buffy until the next morning. Like what? (laughs) Like she's leaving right now and she hasn't even told Buffy yet. I I don't know, whatever, but she's having the conversation with Buffy and Buffy's like, you're going to be fine. And she's like, I'm going to be fine. And then the next scene is one of my favorite scenes in the entire Buffy verse. When Buffy walks out onto her back porch and she starts crying because her mom is sick and it's awful and she's sad. And Spike walks up straight up to her fucking backyard with the gun, as we'll later see in season six. Yeah, at the end of season six, Warren comes into her fucking backyard with the gun and shoots her. Anyway, so she come, he comes up with the gun and he's ready to like point it at her. And as he told Harmony, like he'll have two hours of intense neurological pain, but whatever, it'll be worth it. He's going to do it anyway. And he's super pissed and he stomps up to her. How did he know she was in the backyard? Why is he coming through the backyard? I don't know. Anyway, whatever. He walks right up to her and he sees that she's crying. And and again, you see the emotions change on James Marster's face and it's just beautiful. You see him trying to stay upset. It's like you see his concern for her immediately in his eyes and then he had... And then he tries to, like, recover and be pissed again, but he can't. You just see all this shit happening on his face. And then you see him just like, what's wrong? And then she says she doesn't want to talk about it. And then he says, is there anything I can do? And this is where you see, you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Just the acting is beautiful. She gets all wide-eyed and confused. Like, is Spike trying to comfort me right now? And she lets him, you know, she, she doesn't answer the, is there anything I can do question, but she doesn't tell him to go the fuck away, which is what she normally would have done. She doesn't, she chooses to let him, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to console someone. He's a vampire. He doesn't, something that was pointed out in the TPN, um, episode guide, Buffy guide on YouTube, which I think is really important. And I feel like I've mentioned this before, but if I have if I haven't. So he points out when he's talking about this episode that there are three different kinds of empathy. There's cognitive empathy, emotional empathy, and compassionate empathy. empathy. So cognitive empathy is where um, you can see what someone else is feeling, but you're not really feeling it too. 
and emotional empathy is where you can uh, see and understand what someone's feeling and you're also feeling it too. So emotional empathy can easily be taken too far because you can't help someone if you're completely in emotional empathy. If you're completely in the space where they are, you can't help them. And cognitive empathy, you can see what they're going through and then choose to use that to manipulate them. Like a lot of sociopaths probably have cognitive empathy, but they don't have like literal empathy. And then compassionate empathy, that is the the best of the three. That's what Giles has. He's able to see what someone's going through, feel what they're going through, but pull back that feeling far enough to actually be able to help them. Um, and it was pointed out that like, what Spike typically has for people is cognitive empathy. He's very observant. He sees what's going on with people immediately, but he only brings it up when he's trying to manipulate them or when he's trying to gain an advantage in some way. That's the only time he ever brings it up. But with Buffy, he's starting to feel emotional empathy because he is in love with her. So he sits next to her. I don't know. I just want to point that out. So she... She just kind of like is looking around wide-eyed like, why Why is he comforting me? And she's being vulnerable and she's not immediately shutting it down. Like, she wouldn't even cry in front of Riley right now, but she will cry in front of Spike. And it's weird because you can see her kind of going through this in her head like, what? I'm comfortable with Spike right now. Why am I comfortable with Spike right now? Oh my God, what does this mean? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm upset and he's... She allows him to console her. That's what this whole scene is. He was going to kill her, but he couldn't because he loves her. He can't do that. He wasn't going to do it no matter what. But he immediately, his empathy is activated and he wants to help her for no reason other than just to help her. But he's not used to that. So he doesn't know how to do it. So he just kind of sits down next to her awkwardly and pats her on the back. And it's very awkward as those kinds of moments in real life are. But then they just sit next to each other. They just sit in each other's presence. And that is something that we will see many, many more times throughout the series. Spike is able to just sit with Buffy in her emotions. She's able to be, I think she even states with him at one point that she wants to be alone and he starts to leave. And she says, no, I want to be alone with you, you know? Or something to that extent. Like, she can be alone with Spike. And that's that's where their actual connection really lies. I think that's how she ends up falling for him in some way. Even though I still, I still assert that she never really loves him. But she... She can open up to him because he doesn't expect her to solve everything. He doesn't expect her to, I don't know. He is willing, because of like this moment, he's willing to sit with her where she is and just let moments have their space and gravity without having to explain, without having to... I don't know. I don't know how to articulate what I'm saying, but I just think this is such a touching moment. And it reminds me of, I just think that's the most powerful thing you can do for someone whenever they're super sad. Um, I had a moment a few years ago where I was triggered by something at work 
it was like a work day seminar thing. And the guy was saying some stupid shit about the tornado. And the way that outsiders talk about the tornado that happened in my hometown in 2011 that destroyed our town and destroyed my house and destroyed my mom's house and destroyed my little sister's house. And my grandparents had to rebuild their house, take it down to the studs and rebuild it. And a lot of my town was destroyed. It was a very traumatic event, and it was something that took me a while to recover from. And sometimes when people come to talk to us, this has happened more than once at a work event where someone was coming for some kind of seminar or something to talk to us. And it's like it's like they've done research on the town that they're going to, and so they found out about this tornado, and they think that, they're, that they have an in with us by bringing it up. And it's always so tone-deaf when they do in my mind, like other people are fine with it, but I'm very sensitive. So this guy had brought up the tornado in some irresponsible way. And I wasn't the only one that was upset by it, but I had to leave the room. I just got up and left the room as if I was going to the bathroom and just didn't come back for 20 minutes. And I had gone to like some little corner of the children's department, sat in a chair. And one of my coworkers who also knew exactly, she knew exactly why I got up and left the room, essentially. And she was having some similar feelings. And so she came and she sat, she just, she just, all she did, in my memory, we didn't even talk. She just asked me, can I sit with you? And I said, yes. And she just sat down and we were, I think we were both crying and we both just sort of were crying together. I think we probably did talk a little bit, but it was a lot like this moment where it's awkward, it's strange, and you're just being in the moment with someone, and it was just the most powerful thing, because she didn't try to, like, say anything like, it'll be okay, or anything cliche like that, like, that kind of stuff that you really want, you really knee-jerk want to say in those moments, even though they're cliche, because you want to fill the space, and I love when someone doesn't try to fill that space, you know, and that was just one of the most powerful moments for me, somebody just sitting next to me while I was having a super emotional moment and just sharing the space with me, just being there. That was literally all that was needed. Someone being there. So I don't know. I just found that to be an incredible moment in my own life. And that's what this moment at the end of Fool for Love reminds me of. So where are we? <laughs> Let's get... Spike, let's Buffy console her. Okay, yes, that's the end. Um, ratings of the episode, I already told you the quote and the outfit. Um, object of the episode, Cecily's couch. I don't know if it's actually her couch, but the couch that Cecily and Spike are sitting on is like this huge Victorian, like, curved couch. My mom used to have one, and my aunt has one now. Um... Yeah, I'd love to have a couch like that again someday. It's it's a good one. It's big. It's big. So that's the object of the episode. MVP. Um, I don't know. Let's give it to Nikki. Nikki the Vampire Slayer. I don't know if we actually find out her name in this episode, but we will find out later that the second Slayer that Spike killed in 1977 is named Nikki. So, um... Let's give it to her because she, I don't, I, I always get pissed off when you see a vampire kill a slayer and not drink her blood, such as when Drusilla killed Kendra and didn't drink her blood. And at least Spike killed 
at least Spike drank the blood of the first layer that he killed, but he did not drink her blood, or at least they didn't show it. They just showed him like choking her and then breaking her neck. Maybe we just didn't see the point where he drank her blood, but it's just like, why would you ever not? If you're a vampire and you're killing a slayer, that's going to be the blood that you want to drink the most, right? Don't be flippant like that, Spike. Anyway, Nikki died too soon. She was a badass and she didn't deserve it, even though I love Spike. So Nikki gets MVP of the episode and then like five by five ratings. You know what? I think I'm going to start interpreting it as five out of five. So five by five now means what is my overall rating on this episode out of five? I'm giving it five. I'm giving it five. This episode is really enjoyable from beginning to end. And almost every single moment is iconic. Almost every single moment is well acted by everyone involved. Really, every single moment in this episode is important to the storyline of Buffy and is a good moment. The moment, the only scene you see Dawn in, good moment for Dawn. You don't hate her guts in that moment. The only scenes that you see Anya, Willow, and Xander in, they're being super funny and cute and having good physical comedy together. Like, the moment with Riley, like, with his medical combat training, combat medical training, and he put Buffy back together and he saved her. And of course, he did that thing where he was like, went in and killed the vampires all by himself, which he shouldn't have done. But overall, this is just a very solid episode. And it was actually very enjoyable to watch this episode and the angel episode of Darla. So it is now getting dark, you guys. That's how long I've been talking to you guys. One hour and 37 minutes. It is now five o'clock and I started recording before 3.30. Wow. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. You're awesome. I I really loved this. This is why I do this. <laughs> Um, let me know your thoughts on Fool for Love and Darla. And next week, we'll be back to talk about two other episodes. Shadow is the Buffy episode. And the Angel episode is called Shroud of something. I don't know. I cut it off on my calendar and I'm not looking it up right now because I've already been talking forever. I love you guys so much. Thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Bye.